So very happy to have Amar Kandale here from uh, Livongo, where you're the chief product officer. Um, and this is a great opportunity to talk about AAI in, in the health context, which is um, incredibly exciting and important. So to start, for, for those who aren't familiar with Livongo, tell us about the company, your mission, and um, how AAI plays into it. Sure. So um, I... First of all, like thank you for uh, bringing me back. I was here last year uh, as part of a panel, also the opportunity to talk about AAI. Um, uh, one of the reasons I'm excited to be back is, is we've now grown, and I'll, I'll put some of my comments in the context of AAI as you know, a young company is growing and doing more of, of this kind of work. Um, so Livongo's mission is to empower people with chronic conditions to live better and healthier lives. Uh, we started uh, with a focus on diabetes, uh, which affects uh, about 30 million Americans. Overall, chronic conditions affect about 160 million Americans. So this is really not, uh, you know, kind of a rarefied problem. It's a consumer-grade problem, and the, the solutions have, generally speaking, been fairly enterprise-oriented. So that's what we saw as the opportunity. And uh, when we began the company, um, it included this AAI concept. It was about five years ago. And we started to appreciate that a lot of the hassles that a person with a, a condition like diabetes was dealing with um, really had to do with friction in their experience. And uh, we acknowledged that by using technology, we could start to eliminate a lot of those, those hassles. So in a sense, the first um, subject of our AAI work was really built around our users themselves. So if I'm a person with diabetes, I'm often checking my blood sugar. I don't know what my numbers mean or what to do about them. Livongo is able to offer decision support in that context in order to help a person make a better decision. We're then able to measure whether that advice that we gave is actually effective or not. And not just something that a person chose to adopt, but whether it's clinically effective and drove a better outcome, and fundamentally whether it's cost effective and drove cost savings for the healthcare system. So we began with that premise. Um, the other place where AAI has shown up for us from our very earliest days is there's times when in that experience in living with a chronic condition that things get very complex. And so um, it could be, for example, extremely high or extremely low blood sugar values, which could be dangerous. In those cases, a, a member of our team, a certified diabetes educator, would jump into the, into the feedback loop um, within a minute, uh, typically on the phone with that individual, helping them to get their numbers back to a safe place. So the bulk of the interactions in our service are digital, but in these really critical exceptions, we'd bring a very qualified uh, person into the loop uh, offering much richer and more complex uh, troubleshooting support. So that's how we began our, our journey five years ago. Um, we started out uh, uh, experimenting in different markets. We now have just over 200,000 active users in our service living with diabetes and using our services to improve their health. We've also expanded into a number of additional chronic conditions, many of which are adjacent to diabetes. So that's high blood pressure, hypertension, it's overweight and obesity in service of prediabetes, as well as um, weight as a comorbidity of other chronic conditions. And most recently, behavioral health, where we found that a lot of very similar principles apply. Uh, there's only so much a person can do with digital technology alone, and often a human needs to jump in in order to troubleshoot these complex scenarios. That's our most recent addition. Awesome. A lot to unpack there. So. Um, as you've expanded or expanded across conditions, how have you calibrated or recalibrated what you're relying on the machines for and what you're relying on humans for? 
Yeah, that's a great question. One decision we made fairly uh, early in our life was to figure out what aspects of that person's experience who's living with one or more chronic conditions um, was really a, a, a friction reduction job and which aspects were a uh, complexity unraveling job. Um, what we found was technology uh, was, a, was a really obvious place um, uh, to focus for the friction reduction. So that's everything from when you check your blood sugar, uh, how do we make sure that your number gets to the cloud? We use cellular to do that. How do we make sure we're able to run enough algorithms on that data to give you back really specific feedback in that moment? Uh, where, we, where we found that um, there was a really clear break was that across all these chronic conditions, we would encounter places where uh, the, the circumstances were more complex. Maybe the, the, the person may not have as much knowledge heading into the, the situation, and therefore couldn't give us great input. And so that became a, a really important, I'd say, kind of class of cases where we had to do triage. Uh, and that be, that's continued to be a place where humans play an important role. Do you build the devices as well? And so that, so you're getting the data from your own full stack, so to speak. It's, it's full stack, yeah. So our model is that we do hardware, we do software, and we do service. And um, what that's done for us is it's given this ability to use those uh, outer feedback loops to really drive the more tactical interventions that we run. So because we're able to measure things like blood sugar directly and in real time, uh, we can know whether an interaction with a human was clinically effective or not, which is fascinating, actually, because it's something that um, is really not known very well in the rest of healthcare outside of the hospital. The hospital is kind of the only place where those feedback loops are pretty tight. In the rest of our life, as health, uh, people who consume healthcare, healthcare consumers, um, you generally don't have that ability to close those feedback loops, you know, often at all, other than in a very subjective way. You know, did, did my medicine work? I kind of feel better. I'm not sure. Uh, until you get back to the doctor's office. Can you say more about how the company works with healthcare providers? I mean, that sounds um, very interesting, potentially complicated, but also potentially very valuable in terms of end goals of transforming our healthcare system. Yeah, there, there's some interesting and familiar comments earlier today about uh, the 1980s and fax machines. Um, so in, in talking about inter interacting with the healthcare system, like there is a, there's a massive kind of um, you know, impedance mismatch with sort of everything else we do in our lives. Um, we found uh, that a few things become interesting. One is, starting with the very basics. I'm a person, I have a chronic condition, I've been asked by my doctor to measure my numbers, I don't, my, don't know what my numbers mean, and that means I don't know when to see my doctor. So the kind of first order question to answer is, when should I see my doctor? Um, and we found that to be like a, just very consistent. Nearly all of our members don't know the answer to that question, unless it's emergency. They don't know when to go back. So um, that became the first place to look. Uh, then we started to find that answering the first question of when should I see my doctor required explanation. So this idea of sufficient uh, transparency in the way we gave that feedback um, was becoming increasingly important. So not only would we want to be able to say, we see something in your numbers, you should see your doctor. We actually had to say something like, we see your numbers trending in a particular direction, we suggest you see your doctor. Or we suggest you see your doctor and have a conversation about X. Um, we're finding that to become increasingly important now that we're covering more conditions. So on one hand, our, our members are giving us more responsibility and the opportunity to work with them on more things, but our products also become more complicated itself. So it's, it's less clear when we do suggest you talk to your doctor uh, what you should talk about. 
This brings up one question I had, which is around liability. And um, obviously, a lot of this is very sensitive and, and very critical information. Is there a difference in the um, sort of, I use that word broadly, liability of when the, the machine is recommending something versus a human? Or is one of the re reasons humans are stepping in to just sort of cover your bases and make sure that uh, the computer isn't telling you to do something that could potentially be very dangerous. Yeah, that's that's a really great question, and and you know we don't practice medicine, we don't give medical advice, um, but we do clinical work. You know, our our product is cleared by the FDA. It's um, rigorously tested. Uh, you know, what ends up dictating a lot of how we consider um, the you know where to where to apply where to where to lean more heavily in on technology whereas uh, versus bringing a person to the loop has a lot to do with the the consequence of the advice uh, or the recommendation rather and so uh, in some cases the the consequence is is going to be more oriented towards satisfaction or convenience in others and and the line tends to be quite clear um, thankfully with with much of healthcare data uh, when it is clinical in nature either it's it's based on evidence, and the rules are extremely transparent, and we're able to expose them, uh, or we rely on a clinician. So, um, but it, th this is this is an interesting one as as the field's evolving, and you know there was some conversation earlier about um, PTSD, uh, which is a fascinating area. Behavioral health is a great example of a place where we are starting to enter um, an, a lot of um, complexity because the line is far less clear. And, uh, and, and we're also interacting with a lot more technology in a way that puts an onus on the technology providers. Um, you know, one example that's, that's, that's starting to become extremely common is um, conversation about suicide. And you know, people talk to their Alexa and their Siri about, about um, self-harm. Uh, you know, what are the, like, how do we, you know, I think those are still questions that, that we're all trying to figure out the best ways to answer. Where do you see that going? I mean, do you think that there will be a role where we try to bake more, I don't want to say necessarily medical advice, but more facilitation sort of into products when it comes to beyond just the chronic conditions you're looking at? Is is this a sort of more mainstream approach for dealing with things like mental health and other conditions? Uh, you know, I think we've, well, what, what's what's becoming clearer now, um, you know, as, as this the stigma is just beginning to be relieved around behavioral health. People are ready to start talking about it more openly and publicly. Uh, unfortunately, it's also reached epidemic proportions. Um, uh, I think those two factors are, are important in the dialogue that we're now beginning to have. I, I don't think that um, it's, it's yet clear uh, what constitutes as the wellness side of behavioral health and what constitutes the the, the truly clinical side, in the sense, it's 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 well known in 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 the clinical world. It's not as well known for us as consumers as to where that line is drawn. And the same thing goes for a lot of technology providers. So I think I think many of the the, the companies, entities, you know, folks who are folk, who are very focused on technology are are defaulting to the tools that lend themselves to digitization. So you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a good example really well suited to technology. Because of the epidemic scale of the problem, it's starting to become, in a sense, a first line. Everyone gets some, you know, why not, right? And, and the, the, it's a reasonable approach because you're not likely to harm anyone by offering a tool like that. Um, what, where things start to get much more complex is what is the, what, you know, the ongoing sort of, the value promise that you've made by offering cognitive behavioral therapy is that you're gonna help a person get better. So what happens if you're not able to fulfill that promise? Uh, 
I think that the, the, most folks, generally speaking, kind of fall off a cliff in the sense that there isn't a place to go next. There isn't a therapist you know, behind the curtain. And so I think we still have to solve for that. We still have to make sure that there's a way to take a person from that first line to some other destination. Speaking sort of of your um, patient customer experience, how do you, like, what do you tell them about the product and the mm -hmm. computer versus the human? How do you take them on this sort of journey and manage their expectations? Yeah, we're, we're right now pretty, and we're very transparent in terms of um, when we're communicating to our members, it's, it's unambiguous as to whether they're speaking to uh, a person or whether the, the message they're receiving is, is, a, is, a, is a digital message. Um, we're considering alternatives, though, you know, as, as I think um, many of the folks in this room are, um, and particularly on the basis of the task class, you know, as to are there places where we're more likely to get a more accurate answer if the dialogue is conversational, uh, where we have a human, you know, perhaps available uh, to, to, to step into the loop if required, our suspicion is yes. You know, our suspicion is that it is going to be a really common case. And um, we'll begin by focusing on the non-clinical uses of that approach before we, we start to consider any clinical use of the approach. But um, we, we do find some very interesting things like, uh, you know, like, like we, we spoke about earlier in today's sessions around this willingness to speak there's these these ironies around a willingness to share more when you are when you don't think you you're talking to a person and that's part of the reason why you know Siri hears so much and Alexa hears so much is because there's this feeling of you know partial anonymity at least if not complete you know complete anonymity how brings up, I mentioned liability issue. What about just the data and data privacy issues in health? I mean, do those present more barriers in terms of doing what you're trying to do versus, you know, a, a service where I'm booking my travel, for example? Yes. So, you know, so we're subject to HIPAA, um, which is uh, really, a, it's sort of the health data um, appropriately has a lot of controls over it. Um, it, it also means that we've, and uh, the other interesting sort of attribute of, of health data is like, you can, we, we take a very uh, conservative definition of what health data is, meaning if a person's a member in our program, that fact is health data because we're a, con a, comp a company that deals with chronic conditions. So um, even, even exposing the identity of our members you know, to another service is itself problematic and something we don't do. Um, that said, you know, it, the kinds of problems that present or challenges that present for us is uh, how do we start to aggregate data from other sources or, or you know, work with services? So that, that's really where the barriers start to show up, is we can't be quite as um, uh, free with, with the, our ability to sort of harness a lot of the technology that is available uh, in the ecosystem. Um, and I think that we're gradually seeing more and more companies take on uh, the burden of, of also becoming HIPAA compliant themselves. So we saw that, for example, with Alexa and we were able to do some work with Amazon because Alexa actually stood up a HIPAA compliant version where we could exchange data in a way that we can then offer that service back to, you know, to our members. But it's pretty uneven. And I think part of the reason is that we're still in a world where um, that there isn't, I mean, we know this, there isn't a lot of technology in healthcare, period. At least not a lot of consumer technology. So there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem that, you know, we're trying to help, you know, sort of... Uh, solve, but I think we actually will need a lot more momentum to, to build before we can expect there to be an ecosystem 
that flows into what I was going to ask, which is how controversial do you th is your approach in the healthcare system, right? I mean, as sort of tech-centric forward consumers, this sounds great. I have other services I use and chat with for other health. Um, but um, in, in ter do you see a real, I mean, if Alexa is getting HIPAA compliant, that suggests there's some demand. But um, are we yet at a tipping point where... Um, you know, we can we might see a lot of services go this direction. I mean, are we going to start to be when I communicate with Blue Cross or Aetna or whatever? Um, you know, there's is is there behind the scenes already some machine learning in in parts of the healthcare system that we might not see? No, there's not. <laughs> um, no, That's I, an opportunity for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think part of um. One of the big biggest I think uh, factors that 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 shows up. Um, you know, there's the kind of convenient ones, you know, to ascribe the problems to, which is say, oh, these are legacy companies and they're really big and they're really old and they're not very motivated to deliver great consumer experiences because the audiences are captive. You know, you're not going to change your insurer very often and you're probably making an economic decision or it's a complex decision. You actually, you know, you don't feel like you have a choice. Um, I think one one of the the recognitions we had very early in our life as a company was that no one wants to spend any time on their healthcare. It's, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's a necessary evil. And so when we considered all of our uh, sort of design principles, they were very much oriented around how do we ensure that you spend as little time using our services as possible or using any services as possible, and that being one of the objective functions. So um, that meant, you know, as I mentioned, stripping out a lot of friction. Um, it meant not expecting engagement to be one of the one of the, f the factors that was going to be a, we weren't we weren't going to optimize on engagement. I think much of the healthcare, you know, kind of attempts at consumerizing their approach is still unfortunately anchored on an idea of engagement. So, you know, you probably do get invited to download the app from your health plan, and that app is going to ping you all day long to come to their you know health plan something, and they have nothing to offer. So there's this disconnect between the value and the return, like the, the effort and the return. And I think that's, that's gonna take some time. I think that's actually a cultural shift uh, that's gonna take some time. Okay, one last one for me, and then we'll open it up. As you're building your team and scaling, what kind of talent are you looking for to sort of drive your AI system sort of forward? Like where do you feel like um, there's maybe a need for more talent and skill set? Where are you drawing from? So um, what we've found is uh, we've had to develop a really diverse set of um, backgrounds and skills. So I'd say we've you know, maybe violated some of the traditional Silicon Valley rules for things like where PMs come from. You know, our, our product managers, for example, have backgrounds in design and engineering, but also in medicine um, and, so, uh, what, and medical devices. So that's, that's created a, um, a set of under, like an understanding of the technologies that are available and the approaches that are available that's, that's somewhat different than a lot of other companies. I think that this, um, it, my, my perspective on healthcare and designing for healthcare is that there will always be humans in the loop. So that to me is kind of a fundamental premise and anything that we're doing needs to design with those principles in mind, which I don't think is a very, it's not as common as, as it is in other industries. Um, uh, to you know, the idea of digitizing the whole thing is is not feasible in healthcare. So um, I'd say that's that's you know that's part of the reason I'm here. It's part of the reason I'm excited about the work that's going on um, in this field. Uh, I think it also means that um, experience design becomes far more important than you know, uh, you know a lot of the service design, experience design become a lot more important than 
um, what you know traditional product or feature design in the way that they're often considered. Okay. Well, Mara, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you.